0: So I've been uh, battling a cold all this week. Um, You can hear it in my voice. Um, So I've been mostly sleeping it off this week. So it's affected my preparations a little bit, (laughs) as well as my voice. So um, please indulge me. Please excuse that. Um, Let's begin with a word of prayer. Almighty God, um, we give you thanks for your word that you have spoken to us. And we know every word, every sentence uh, comes from your mouth. It's for our instruction, it's for our edification and our joy. Help us to receive it um, with joy and with eagerness. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So we're almost done in our whole Bible series. Um, Today we're going to cover five books um, which is much faster than the pace that I've been normally going at, but these are the relatively small, minor books, minor in the sense of length. Um, but actually, <coughs> you know, Second John and Third John, and as well as Jude, I don't really see it quoted too often. Uh, it could be that just the sheer length, but I think it's really interesting because we know that all of scriptures therefore there for our edification. And so I think that just means that we have yet to discover all the rich depths of why it's there, Um, but uh, I think that means that scripture is this enormous cave complex. We only know certain chambers sort of modestly well. We know other smaller chambers less well, but it's an exploration that will take our entire lives, but also Christian thinkers and scholars are constantly digging and thinking and making connections, so I think that's really exciting. There's um, like one of the standards for literature is that it bears repeat readings. Like when you read um, Pulp Fiction or when you read pop literature, you read it once and then you have no desire to read it a second time because you got got it all. (laughs) You got 90% of it, right? Um, But literature has layers, so when you read a great piece of literature, you read it again um, five years later or ten years later and you see things you never saw before that was always there and then it repeats um it it bears repeat readings the greater the literature the greater the amount of times you can reread it i think the bible is something that you can read over and over and over again for the rest of your life and you'll never reach the bottom so um let's let's dive into it second peter this is the second letter of, second epistle of the Apostle Peter. And uh, I wanted to highlight a passage on second coming. Second coming is not something that we talk about a great deal. Or when we do talk about it, it's sort of like the fringe groups that talk about it. Um, but I w- actually want you to know that um, the second coming of Christ is really central in the Bible, and the New Testament. It occurs a total of there are uh, three hundred different mentions of it in the New Testament. So one out of every thirteen verses, it just comes up again and again and again and again. Maybe you didn't even notice it, but it's constantly talking about the hope that is to be revealed, the glory that's to be um, that, that is awaiting us. And so uh, this is a crucial teaching. So let's let's this is and this is one of them. Um, let me read it to you. Second Peter chapter three. This is now the second letter I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring you up. I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. So he's addressing... um, scoffers who are going to come in the last days. We'll, we'll talk about this more in Revelation, but um, I think whenever the Bible talks about the last days, it's not just future, but it's, it's now. It's talking about the last days of redemptive history. They will say, where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation, for they deliberately overlooked this fact, day um, that's awaiting us judgment day the end of human history the dawn of the new creation but do not overlook this one fact beloved that with the day one day with the lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day the lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness but is patient toward you not wishing that any should perish but that all should reach repentance But the day of the Lord, so that's the day when he returns, the day when um, he ushers in the new heavens and the new earth, end of history, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Um, In other other, uh, passages, it's called a thief in the night, right? Will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to His promise, we are waiting for new heavens and and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. All right, so it's a lengthy passage. Um, So the first point I want to make is that this is a crucial teaching of Christianity. Um, And since it's a crucial teaching, it means that you can't live as a Christian unless you're thinking about it all the time, since the Bible talks about it all the time. Um, You can't truly follow Christ unless you're longing for it, you believe it's going to happen, and... um, and you're anticipating it. You're, you're changing your life in light of it coming, right? A um, couple of things I want to talk about. First is con- the issue of continuity and discontinuity. Um, this is a big one. So what is the connection between this earth, this life that we live right now, and then the new earth, uh, the new heavens and the new earth that is promised? Um, what is, what is the relationship between these two things? And I think that in a lot of popular culture and it seeps into the church is that we think of it as this radical disconnect, this um, enormous difference. We don't even think of it as new earth. We think of it as heaven, right? What is the difference between heaven and earth? You know, what is the same, right? The question would be. Um, and Peter seems to suggest Radical discontinuity. So in verse 7, he talks about um, creation uh, coming under fire, destruction. In verse 10, he says, The heavens will pass away with a roar. The heavenly bodies, those are the stars, right? Um, Because they didn't have a word for outer space. Um, So they called it the heavens. So um, the stars, uh, the planets will burn up and dissolve. And so what is that? Radical discontinuity. What is Peter talking about there? He's not saying that the age to come, the life that is awaiting us, is unrecognizably different. He's saying that evil and injustice will be swept away, right? Um, He says the destruction of the ungodly. He says in verse 13, in the new heavens and new earth where righteousness dwells. So he's talking about everything evil. And he's using this kind of very Poetic cosmic language to talk about everything that's wicked in this life, everything that's broken, all human selfishness, all human evil, prostitution, um, broken uh, families, um, sexual abuse, all these things will be swept away, right? But on the other hand, there is essential continuity. And we know that because of just the wording, right? Earth and new earth. Um, When Jesus rose from the dead, he didn't rise up and become an angel. Um, He became a... He he was still a human being. He still had a human body. When we resurrect into this new world that's to come, we're still going to have bodies. We're still going to live on this earth. This earth. Um, There's a lot of... Everything good and beautiful in this life will be carried over. And translated into this new reality that's coming. Um, and then the word new here, when we use the word new, when the Bible uses new, it doesn't mean new as in completely different. It means renewed or restored. So let me just give you a quick example. Let's say you go on a run and you're sweaty and you feel gross. You go home, you take a shower. And after you take a shower, what do you say? You say, ah, I feel like a new person. Does that mean your body parts have all been switched out? (laughs) Are you a completely different human being? No, you've just been restored back to like this pristine state. That's what new earth is. New creation. It's going to be all, everything that's good in earth restored and beautified and uh, renewed. Um, Any questions about that? Continuity, discontinuity? All right. Let's go to the next one. Next point I want to make is he calls it it's going to come like a thief. Um, verse 10, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Um, in other passages, it's called a thief in the night. So what does a thief do? A thief doesn't say, I'm a thief. Um, a thief doesn't like send you a text message. I'll be there in 10 minutes, right? A thief um, comes in the night when no one can see them, and they sneak in, and they slip into your house, when you least expect it, right? So, this is the day of the Lord, um, which means, at any moment, Jesus will return. That's the point. His return is imminent. And I know for us, we think about the 2,000 year history of the church, and we say, it doesn't seem like Jesus is going to return anytime soon. It's been 2,000 years. And Peter is addressing that issue even back then right the years had passed by decades had passed by it doesn't seem like jesus is going to return and peter's saying foolish foolish people there's an um, interesting parable that jesus tells called the parable of the ten virgins or also known as the parable of the bridesmaids it's a story where um, there's these 10 bridesmaids waiting for the bride and groom to come back from their wedding party because they want to join the reception five of them are ready they have their oils, um, they bought the oils for the lamb, and they're ready to go in. And five of them are kind of lackadaisical. They're like, oh, when I see the bride and groom, then I'll go make some preparations. And then what happens at the end of the story is that the five who are ready get into the party. The five who are not ready um, go to the marketplace, buy oil, and then they're locked out of the party. And then the master of the party, the bridegroom, says, I don't know you, away right and so it's a warning to us to not have a relaxed attitude we have to be pay attention let me give you an illustration right I've given this illustration once um, but imagine right you are going on a dinner date with your wife and then um, you're waiting for your wife to get ready and she says I'll be there in a minute so you're standing by the door you're ready to go Dinner reservations in your pocket, but you also really wanted to run an errand in the uh, the corner drugstore. It'll just take ten minutes, and oh, it's something you really want to do. Do you do it? No, <laughs> you wait, and then you wait ten minutes, and then you wait twenty minutes, and then you wait thirty minutes, and then you think. I could have gone three times back and forth. Should I go now? No, because she could arrive at any moment, right? And when she comes, it'll be the end of the world for you (laughs) if you're not there. So that's the mindset, right? Christ has not returned for 2,000 years, but his return is imminent. It could happen at any moment, and therefore we need to prepare. So how do we prepare? Let's look at verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. Listen, and this is the key, and the earth and the and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So when Jesus returns, he returns as the judge. And everything you've ever done in your life will come to light. Light will be shed on it. Everyone will see it'll be open to scrutiny, it'll be exposed. And for those of, uh, uh, those of you who then therefore diligently work to please the Lord, that doesn't mean your life is absent of sin, of course not. That's, that's, um, you will never rid yourself of the presence of sin. But for those of you who are working diligently to um, overcome the power of sin in your life, I'm actually going to preach on that next week, you're, the coming of the Lord will be greeted with joy then because you've been working diligently but if you've had a lazy attitude if you've had a, a, an a, a inattentive attitude then that will be exposed and the Lord will say I don't know you so let me give you an illustration let's say you're in a classroom the teacher says um, the teacher receives a phone call oh I, I need to step outside for one minute and talk on this uh, call Excuse me, I'm congested. So, teacher's going to come back in one minute. You're in the classroom. Do you goof off in that one minute? No, because the teacher's going to come back one, any second, right? But let's say five-minute passes. Ten-minute pa- Everyone's sitting in their seats, quiet and... Att- maybe this is not realistic, but just imagine. Right? Everyone's in their seat, quiet and attentive... Because any minute the teacher can come back, but 20 minute passes. Do you say, I guess the teacher's not returning, let's party it up, let's like make havoc and goof off. No, because then the teacher opens the door, and then you're caught, right? And you'll be in trouble with the teacher. So in the same way, we shouldn't say, I have a lifetime to be holy. A lot of Christians say that, I have a lifetime to be holy. Um, I'll follow Jesus more earnestly later on in my life. And the answer is, no, you don't. Foolish presumption. Um, there's a passage I read in 1 John um, in preparation for all of this, and I, it really affected me. Listen to this. 1 John two twenty-eight. And now, little children, abide in him, abide in Christ, so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. So the imagery here is that it's possible if you're not abiding in Christ, that when He returns, you're ashamed to see Him come. You're not confident because you haven't been living a life that He would delight in and say, well done, good and faithful servant. Every, every day is precious. Every day you should live as if the Lord, the judge, will return. Will He delight in your life or will, he be, will you be in shame? Um, Any questions on that issue or that point? All right. Sort of a continuation of the sobering, warning tone from last week. All right. Um, Let's go to 1 John. How are we doing? Okay. Um, So 1 John, uh, these are the epistles of John. This is the last of the apostles who lived. Um, He was known as the beloved disciple. I think, by the way, let me just make a comment on that. Um, I think that's really neat. It just shows you the humanness of Jesus. He had 12 disciples, and among his 12, he had an inner circle, Peter, James, and John. And among his inner circle, he had a best friend, John, you know, that he just really loved and, and, and connected with. So I just think that shows you the humanity of Jesus. Um, but let's read the, the first. Pa- I, I have two passages that I thought were really interesting. Um, I might abbreviate my comments, but let me just read it for you. Um, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and, and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. So I I wanted to highlight this because um, it just reminds us that the New Testament documents claim to be eyewitness accounts. We just see this all the time. We see it in, for example, the uh, the opening verses of Gospel of Luke. There's all kinds of little evidences that this is eyewitness uh, uh, writing. Um, I recently read a book, maybe two years ago, called Jesus and the Eyewitnesses by Richard Bauckham, which blew my mind away. There's all kinds of little examples. My favorite one is Mark 15:21, where it talks about Jesus, the account of Jesus carrying the cross through Jerusalem. And then the verse says that one of the passerbyers was conscripted, right? His name was Simon of Cyrene. And then Mark says the father of Alexander and Rufus. Now... That makes no sense to mention Simon of Cyrene. Oh yeah, he's the dad of Alexander and Rufus, unless Alexander and Rufus was known to the original audience. It just shows you that um, there were, these are eyewitness accounts, and they're little tiny verses that have no value to us. Like, we don't know who they are, but it had value to the original audience. Um, and the reason why I think that's important is because If you uh, look at the modern world, there's this pervasive idea that the New Testament was written hundreds and hundreds of years after the fact. Legends and uh, myths evolving, and that's just not plausible. Um, Not only that, but the New Testament was written within the first century. Let me just give you one. Um, The Gospel of John, uh, about 80 years earlier, for about 100 years, the scholarship was generally... uh, the the scholarship, the consensus was that the Gospel of John was written late in the second century, so like 180, 170, something like that, meaning many generations after the death of Jesus. And then we found a papyrus original, uh, not original, but a papyrus um, fragment of a copy of the Gospel of John dated to about 100 to 125 AD. So that just blew away all the theories. That means the original Gospel of John must have been written several decades before this papyrus copy that puts it well within the first century it's the last gospel um, um, and it puts it within the lifetime of all the eyewitnesses so this is really encouraging to me I think to us Um, we should know that the New Testament is absolutely reliable Um, all the documents were written in the first century Um, they were eyewitnesses and the early church existed only because you had hundreds of eyewitnesses living in Judea, in the Mediterranean world and they couldn't have gotten away with making these incredible claims about Jesus unless the eyewitnesses could back it up it just wouldn't have been plausible so you have this first century Jewish movement of monotheists who are claiming this man Jesus was God how, how do you explain that? let's go to the next passage First John chapter 4, this is uh, John's most famous passage, so I wanted to read it. First um, John 4, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this the love of God was made, ma- was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, that we might live through him. And this is love. Not that we, ha- we have loved God, but He loved us and sent His Son to be the propiti- propitiation for our sins. Propitiation means satisfactory um, uh, sacrifice. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. By the way, notice that same theme again, right? How do we prepare for the day of judgment? We need to have confidence by how we conduct ourselves now. So that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as He is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. And he who does not love his brother, whom he cannot see, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. Um, And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So I think this is a pretty profound passage, amazing passage, John says, God is love. That's the strongest way you could put it. Um, Because love is not an action that God simply does, like a verb, God loves. Um, It's not an adjective. God is a loving God. But it's put in identity form. God is love. That's the essence of who He is. That's the core of His being. I just want us to meditate and think about that for a moment, right? That the essence of God is love above his greatness above his wisdom above his power and knowledge he is love that's like that's, that's, that's what drives him that's, that's the thing that he's the most passionate about um, the Bible emphasizes uh, two attributes of God above all others he is holy and he is love I think that's really remarkable. And if the essence of God is love, then if you claim to follow Him and love Him and to be born from Him, you have to be like Him. You have to love. You have to love people. Um, You have to put their interests above your own. Um, You have to care about them. And the absence of love is a denial of God Himself. You can't say, you know, oh, I know a lot about God doctrinally. I'm very orthodox. Um, I work very hard. All these things are meaningless if you don't love. And we're not just talking about loving feelings again, but loving actions, right? This is the indispensable uh, mark of a Christian. Listen to John 13, 35. Jesus says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples. How will they know? If you have love for one another. And so, we are to love all people, but particularly we are to love our brother in Christ. So, meaning we are to love our brothers and sisters in the church. So, we should love the church. We should uh, serve the needs of the church. We should reconcile and forgive brothers and sisters in the church. And that's the chief calling that um, the Bible is is, uh, uh, calling us to do, right? Like, how do we prepare for the coming of Christ? Live a life of love. How do we abide in Christ? We should love our brothers and sisters, not just the people who are easy to love and we get along with, people who are difficult to love, right? That require our forgiveness and require our patience because this is the way God loves us. That's the essence of of God. I think that is really amazing. Like, before all before there was creation, before there was anything, there was just the triune God and He was just loving each each person in the Trinity. Um, any questions on that? Or any thoughts? Let's go to Second John. Uh, it says chapter 1, it's only one chapter, <laughs> so it's just verse 5. And now I ask you, dear lady, so this is, an expression for the church that is particular to 2 John only. <laughs> so he calls the church a lady, a dear lady. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing to you a new commandment, but the one you, we have heard from the beginning, oh, the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. So I just wanted to follow that up with Second John. John just repeats himself, right? He just says, we should love one another. I think The reason why John repeats himself is because, it must be, because it's really hard to do. Right? It's really hard to love people in the church. Um, it's, It's easier to love your friends, because you're friends with them, because you have all these other common interests, your personalities click, it's easy to get along. But the church is filled with this mishmash of people who don't have anything in common other than Everyone loves Jesus. Everyone has uh, been found in Christ. And that means that we're going to constantly sin against each other, offend one another, hurt each other. There's going to be a lot of misunderstanding. And so I think this is why we see this commandment over and over again. The chief characteristic that we could display Christ to the world is that as a church, we love one another tenaciously holding on to each other. Um, Any comments on that? All right, let's go on. Because I'm determined to make it to Jude. Yes? Which church? We don't know. Yeah, we don't know. So it could have been that he was writing to a particular church, a particular region, um, and then he purposely doesn't, like Paul to the Ephesians or the Colossians, he purposely doesn't um, put a, address it because he wanted it to be distributed. He wanted it to be circulated. But we're not. But Second John doesn't seem like that because uh, if you read Second John, um, he says, "I'm coming to you. I'm just writing down really quick notes." Um, to be honest, I don't know how to read Second and Third John. They they seem like very odd pieces of literature in the New Testament. Um, maybe that's. Um, something you never heard a pastor say, but I'm I'm thinking about it. I need to continue to 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 understand what's going on. All right, third John. Um, here's the passage, uh, verse. I, I thought it was really interesting, so I'm and I'm literally picking from like twelve verses. So, <laughs> <laughs> so John writes, I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want who want to and puts them out of the church. So here's the story of Diotrephes. And I bring him up because it connects to the commandment of we have to love one another, right? How do we deal with conflict in the church and how do we deal with sin in the church, right? Um, And this gets to the question of church authority and church discipline. And I think this really rubs us as American, modern American people the wrong way um, because we don't like uh, authority. We distrust authority and we don't like Um, like institutions Um, the best example that I always kind of smile at is um there's a story in this American life about Cuervo man Cuervo I guess is a tequila drink Um, and uh, he is like a promoter of tequila so he goes around spring break parties and hands out free samples of Cuervo tequila and then he has like party gear and he just like like yay and then tries to get people to drink tequila funny thing is he's a recovering alcoholic he used to be he, he used to he almost destroyed his life with alcohol so he never drinks alcohol so he goes to these tequila parties but he never takes a sip and then the interviewer says oh that's really interesting you know about your life story and then they and then and then the person says do you ever feel like people drink to excess at these parties he's Like, Pfft. he's like for sure everyone's getting plastered and drunk and then the interviewer said do you like does that bother you like do you do you do you have concerns about that do you feel responsible that you're like encouraging these people to get drunk and his answer I just loved his answer because I felt like it captures the spirit of our age he said that's not my problem everyone has to take care of themselves so it's not my responsibility to tell other people that they're wrong that's their business I'm just, c- I'm just thinking about myself and I'm not gonna drink because I have a problem with alcoholism. So I think that's a perfect example of individualism. Everyone's an autonomous self and we've kind of come to the church with that same mentality which is it's a sort of a voluntary association. We sort of congregate and we're together but everyone is like n- you can't tell me there's something wrong with my life because no- nobody gave you that right. And I think the other thing that's going on is the fall of institutions. Um, we live in an age where we can't trust any institutions anymore. Um, think about the Catholic sex scandals. Not just uh, bad priests, but it goes all the way up to bishops, archbishops, and possibly the Pope. The whole institution is just out to protect itself. Think about the, all the doping scandals in sports. Lance Armstrong doped the whole time. That's shocking to us, right? It's the fall of our heroes. The most recent one is the college entrance exam scandals, right? The whole game is rigged. All the elite people are like in it for money and it's not a fair system. And the church isn't immune from that. Um, there's a big problem of spiritual abuse by pastors, right? A lot of pastors fall all the time. Like um, um, and maybe every two or three months on Christianity Today, there's another big name pastor who has fallen. Um, and he abuses his sheep. And so, it makes us distrustful. And it seems like Diotrephes was probably a leader in the church. If you read the text, it says, um, he refuses, what was it? He also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. So he might have been a pastor, or he might have been an elder, or some kind of leader in the church. Um, But nevertheless, even though we have all these... um, hesitancies about authority, the Bible nevertheless constantly tells us to obey our leaders and we need to trust their authority um, because the opposite of submission isn't freedom, it's chaos. So let me just read you some passages. Hebrews 13 verse 17, Obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls and those who will and as those who will have to give an account Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. And I also want to read 1 Peter 5, 3. Um, This is a description of elders, and one of the descriptions is this, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to your flock. So Peter here says to elders, the way you exercise authority is not by being domineering, meaning don't be heavy-handed. Don't say, hey, (laughs) I'm the (laughs) elder here. You need to listen to me, right? Right? but you have to be an example. You have to win them over, persuade them with your life, right? So elders are to be gentle. They're to be um, compassionate. They're to be patient. Um, But at the same time, we have to be courageous as elders to speak truth in love and, and offer rebuke and correction. And as people in the church, we have to be willing to receive rebuke and correction, not just from elders, but also from our fellow Christians. Let me just share with you a personal story. Um, I was uh, walking with Jeff Murray. Uh, uh, Jeff Murray and I took a walk yesterday for about two hours. It was a really great walk, and I was telling him how, in my mind, theoretically, I always knew I'm a sinner saved by grace, and so I have flaws and problems, and if anyone ever comes to me and says, Michael, flaws and problems in your life, I will say, Bless you. I love you. Yes, I humbly acknowledge those flaws and problems. I repent. I want to change. Theoretically, right? And then um, the elders came to me and said, you have flaws and problems in your character and your actions. And the whole meeting, I was like, this is unfair. This is wrong. They're misguided. Fools. (laughs) 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 And so it just hurt like hell. It really hurt. It felt like they were saying, I'm a bad guy. And I'm like, I'm not a bad guy. I'm a good guy. And it just felt like they were wrong. And I realized it's just so painfully difficult to receive rebuke and correction. Because we just have this self-image of ourselves. We don't believe the gospel, that we're sinners saved by grace. In our heart of hearts, we believe God loves us because we're a good person. That's why why we're his child. And so, um, instead of seeing rebuke as an opportunity to grow deeper in the gospel, and uh, instead of seeing rebuke as, in fact, every rebuke falls short of your true depravity, right? Um, you're actually much more wicked than what anyone can possibly imagine. Um, and therefore, it's an opportunity to grow deeper in grace, fall into the arms of Christ. Your, security is, your identity is secure in Christ. Um, so that's how we love. And I think in that way, the American individualism keeps us from loving one another well. Now, you shouldn't say, Pastor Michael says I should be rebuking people, and then go and say, let me t- point out some of your wrongs. Um, you need to earn that right. It needs to be done through friendship. Um, you need to do it with tears, not with an attitude of, of um, superiority, but one of like fellow, I'm a sinner with you. Um, any thoughts on that? Any comments on that? All right. Well, I'm ahead of time, so I'm going to leave it there. Let's, let's keep talking about it. Any thoughts on church discipline or, or um, how we can love one another by rebuking each other? How does one receive? How does one receive? I, I think this is what you should do. <laughs> like... The reason why people don't want to rebuke another person is because they'll burn their relationship. They'll burn the bridge. So you need to make it safe for people to rebuke you. So I think what you should do is you should tell your close friends in the church or maybe your CG or something like that, I give you permission to come and tell me if there's um, flaws in my life. I want you to come and tell me and I promise I will receive it. And then when they come and rebuke you, they can tell you, do you remember that conversation? Do you remember you promised you would receive us well? And so I think that kind of formalizing of the rebuke process helps. That's what membership process is supposed to be. So when you become a member, I'm telling all the members, there's gonna be come a time where I'm gonna tell you, you know, there's serious sins in your life. You promise to receive me. You promise not to run. Um, and so I think that might help. I don't know, what are your thoughts? Yeah. And I told her, I think one of your best qualities is being able to, to have the courage to bring that up to someone, Because you care about the person. Up. Like for me in my life, I want to receive, every, like any human, you see, we live so close to each other. I want to know. And so, yeah, yesterday she was like, hey, Linda, I think you can improve in this way. And it does, it does hurt a little bit. It hurts. <laughs> it hurts. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Any other comments? All right. Um, Let's go to Jude. Jude is um, a brother of Jesus. Um, He's very modest. He says he's actually a brother of James. Um, But James says he's a brother of the Lord. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think the reason why they're very coy about it is because they don't want that to be like a distinction that elevates them, so they're very, they, they speak in a very circum circumventing way, and then, and James and, and, and Jude, who were brothers of Jesus, they never refer to him as a brother. They speak of Jesus as the Lord, the Lord of all creation. I think actually that's pretty trippy that you grew up with Jesus. <laughs> you knew him as a child, right? you knew him as a teenager, pimply teenager um, but they were, they were absolutely persuaded and convinced that he is the risen Lord. Um, Jude. Uh, Jude is a derivation of Judah. Judas, Jude, and Judah are all the same name. They're just like variations. Um, so it's a very common name in, uh, among the Jews. Uh, let me read you Jude, um, just three, verse, three, verses 3 to 4. There's no chapter 1. It's just a single chapter. Beloved, Jude tells us that we are to contend for the faith uh, delivered once and for all. So he talks about the faith. This is actually a very um, popular verse for people who want to emphasize that the gospel is unchanging. Um, It was delivered once and for all through the apostles in the first century. And there's nothing new to add. There's no new um, additions to be made. So there's sort of two broad viewpoints about um, the Bible and, and Christianity. One is that Christianity is a trajectory. So it starts out here, but Jesus is pointing us on a trajectory. He wasn't quite courageous enough to go all the way because of the circumstances in which he was in, but he was giving us hints to let us know where it was going. And then we just follow the trajectory, and then it evolves and moves and changes. That's one way to look at it. The other way to look at it is that Jesus is the courageous Lord of all creation. Every time there was sin and evil and flaws, he corrected it. But uh, what he did not correct, everything holds from um, classical Judaism. And it's the faith once and for all delivered. Uh, it's the final statement, and there's nothing new to discover. And so what we're, what we're trying to do is we're trying to understand the gospel as the first century understood it, as the apostles understood it. We're just trying to go back and back to the classics, to the to the, um, to the the original understanding. The second thing Jude says is that we are to contend. The Greek word there means struggle or fight. I think that's a really interesting way to think about the gospel. The gospel is not this um, sort of static, inert object, but we have to constantly struggle for it, to maintain it and fight for it, um, because it's constantly being... Uh, um, able to be perverted and twisted and misunderstood I'm not just talking about doctrinal but moral uh, we do this morally right? we pervert the gospel because listen to what Jude says verse 4 for certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation ungodly people who pervert the grace of our, of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ the word sensuality there is a reference to sexual immorality so how do you deny the gospel? You deny the gospel by living an immoral life um, because the gospel demands uh, a changed life. You cannot continue in sin uh, in, in your old ways. And so um, I think that's really a powerful reminder that we contend for the gospel, not just like through apologetics, but through our lifestyle, through our, um, through our, 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 our moral composure. Um, any questions there? I did it. Five books. <laughs> it helped that like the last three were a chapter each. Yeah, it's a, it's, <laughs> um, it's, a, it's a difference in kind. Um, the way scripture talks about it is that we are not to continue in sin, under sin, um, under the power of sin, so that there has to be struggle. Um, there has to be fighting. The Bible never promises the absence of the presence of sin. So there will be sin in your life because we are fallen people. We are not yet perfected. Um, um, and so we will commit acts of sin, uh, but we should be filled with regret and we should uh, strive to, um, to reform and change. But it also, it, it doesn't mean that there won't be um, habitual or continual sin in your life. There could be a a certain kind of habitual sin in your life that's just always there. You regret it, you're fighting it, but it's just constantly uh, present in your life. You know, you, let's say your sin is, um, you become become angry in a very self-serving way, an extreme way, and you're really trying to work on your temper, but you find yourself in certain kind of triggered ways. You just become enraged and you lose control. And then... You can't, so, so that's possible. It's absolutely true. Um, but there has to be the fight. Um, so the, the, the language of Scripture, and I'm going to talk about this in my sermon. Uh, I'm still puzzling it out and thinking through how it actually works. Um, but we can't be under the power of sin or the enslavement of sin. Um, and there has to be a qualitative difference. So that I think a good test is your close friends uh, if they've known you for five years or so, or 10 years, you can ask them, like, do you think I've changed? Do you think I'm a, a different person? Do you think um, some serious character flaws, um, I'm, I'm working on them? And uh, hear what their honest answer is, right? And uh, I think that's how you can measure how you're doing in your progress. Yeah. <laughs> yes? Can I ask a question about uh, earlier when you were talking about Peter? Peter yeah. Peter? Um, so, like you talked about how important it is to pursue holiness because at the coming, our works will be judged, kind of as like evidence of our salvation. Yes. But also, the Bible talks about um, like the person who doesn't build himself on like a firm foundation and he will be saved, but just as through fire, like all of his works will be burned. That's true. So, is that just for people who like didn't have the time to pursue holiness, or like how do you? See, so, yeah, so the Bible talks about um, sanctification as being. Um, like, we're all justified the same. It's not like I'm more justified than you are justified. We all receive the righteous, same righteous verdict because it's not based on you and me. It's based on the righteousness of Christ. Right. Sanctification is differential. So your progress in sanctification is different than my progress in sanctification. And then the commendation and rewards of sanctification is likewise different. So when our works are exposed or when we show the fruits of our salvation to Christ, there will be differing different levels of commendation. And so passages like some will be saved as if through fire seems to suggest that there's maybe a minimal level of life transformation, but it's, it's minimal. Okay. I ask because Jesus says, like, I didn't know you, and that seems like a justification, thing, right? Yeah. That does, but again, it's not that you're justified by your works, but you're justified by a faith that is active in work, evidence in works, yeah. Um, but, I mean, Jesus says, good and faithful servant. That's going to resound and echo forever and ever in all of eternity. And uh, so that's going to be our crown. One day we will all appear before our Lord, and he will say, I know everything you've ever done for me. I know exactly what you did. Nobody noticed or, you know, every, you know, you were misunderstood. Or, you know, you struggled, but it, it was kind of like, you know, a lot of mixed motives there. But I saw it. I saw the jewels. I saw the gems. I'm so proud of you. I'm so pleased with you. He's going to say that to us. And I think that will, that will just resound in our hearts and souls. And that should be our reward. We're looking forward to that. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your scripture. Thank you for even these relatively minor <laughs> um, letters and epistles in the uh, New Testament, we know that every word is for our good. We pray that we would be lovers of the word. Um, we would earnestly seek you out, search you out in Scripture. I pray that we would be lifelong students of the Bible. I pray that these kind of classes would be launching paths to this discipline that will sustain us forever for the rest of our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you, class.